The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. If you're visiting with us this morning, we want to say welcome in the name of Jesus Christ. And for all those that are sitting here and are joining us online, I want to offer this blessing this morning. The grace and peace of our Lord Jesus be with you. We here at the Springs are a community of Christ that's being transformed into the image of Christ so that anyone can find the way to God. And we do that three ways. We do that by gathering in the name of the Father, like we do this morning, by growing into the image of the Son, and by going in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this year our theme has been gather. And Brett and I have been in a sermon series, mostly Brett, in a sermon series called Blessed Are the Peacemakers. And before we enter into the season of Advent, we want to finish this sermon series on Blessed Are the Peacemakers. So if you'll join me, our text this morning is from 2 Corinthians 13. It says this. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit Be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. God, as always, we give you thanks. For your word is our life. And we confess, even if we don't always live this way, we confess and know that we cannot live on bread alone, but by every word that comes out of your mouth. And so, God, we ask that you speak, for our life depends on it. And we ask for ears to hear, hearts that will follow, lives and bodies that will obey. God, I ask for the gift of preaching. God, speak your good news of peace. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, your word of peace to us. Amen. All right, I want you to do something for me. I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to imagine peace. Like to you. Does it look like a beach? A sunset? Does it look like people smiling, enjoying one another's company? Does it look like having all your loved ones together and they're happy and healthy? Maybe for some of you, it may look like a quiet house with no one in it. 
maybe even for others, it may look like your favorite chair and a nap. Maybe it looks like a world without conflict. Maybe it looks like world peace. Well, I want you to open your eyes. Thank you for taking that moment to imagine, to image in your mind what peace looks like. I appreciate all the guys that got off of their fantasy football setting their lineups during my sermon so you can imagine peace, so you're welcome to get back to that. And at the risk of the rest of you falling asleep that I asked you to close your eyes, thank you for staying awake. But there's a lot of things that we imagine when we imagine or image in our mind peace. But for many Christians, this is an image of peace. This is a painting by Andrei Rublev. And it's actually a painting that was done in the 1500s, and it's been restored since then. And the painting is of the scene in Genesis 18, 1 through 8, where it says the Lord came to visit Abraham. And there were three people, three visitors. And Abraham saw these visitors, and he welcomed them, and he went to get like 36 pounds of flour to make bread. And then he went and found the, the best the best calf and slaughtered the calf so they could eat food and he prepared this meal and he set it before them and it says while they ate under the tree he stood by them and then they began to have a conversation where these the lord and these three visitors asked where sarah was and in this story this is where he promises abram that sarah is going to have a child Now, this painting is also known as the Hospitality of Abraham, but that's not the main name that this painting goes by. The primary name that this painting goes by is the Trinity. Because many Christians have, over time, taken that imagery or that story in Genesis 18. It says, when the Lord visited them, and it's this painting of three angels or three visitors, that they... Soon after Christ came, they began to say, you see, that was God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the beginning, visiting. And in his painting, you could see that God the Father is on the left, although that might not look like what you think God the Father looks like. But Abraham's house is there, which is God's creative, God the Father, the creator. And then Jesus is the son who is bowing to the father. He's in the middle. And you see above him, this is the tree, the tree that they sat under. Or some have said this is the tree of life, or this is to symbolize Jesus who died on a tree. And then the Holy Spirit on the right with a mountain, that this is the spiritual ascent. But for Rublev and for others, Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the embodiment of spiritual unity, harmony, mutual love, humility, and peace. That's what this image or this icon represents. But the focus is not so much the imagery of the background, the building, the tree, and the mountain. 
the imagery is really to focus on these three, and it makes kind of a circle. They're sitting around a table, sharing a meal. And while, of course, the painting is silent, there's this conversation between the three. And what is to get you to focus on is that this is the image of God. This is the image of peace. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit sitting around a table, having a meal, communing together. One God, three persons, perfect communion. Peace. In fact, I've told this before, but I love Augustine, the way he talks about the Trinity. Trinity just means tri-unity, or to, there, there's three in one, in unity. It's this great mystery that if the Christians have been trying to talk about for ages. Because are we talking about three? Are we talking about one? What are we doing? How does this work? The math doesn't add up. But he says this. He says the best way to talk about this is, is like an analogy, and he uses a human analogy. He says if we believe God is love, which scripture affirms God is love. It means this, there must be a lover. And if there's a lover, there must be a beloved. And if there's a lover and there's a beloved, that means there's love that flows between them. And so Augustine talks this way, very relationally, is that God is a lover. God the Father is the lover. The Son is the beloved, and the Holy Spirit is the love that flows between them. Or another way you could think about this, Augustine doesn't do this, but if you want to talk about peace, that God is peace. That God the Father is the one that offers peace. Jesus is the one that receives peace. And the Holy Spirit is the peace that exists between them. In other words, more familiar language that you are used to that comes out of not just Rublov's image, but the image of the Trinity is this. God is a relational God. And God wants a relationship with you and with me. God is a relational God. It's in his very nature in the very nature of the Trinity, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a relationship. And God wants to share that life that he has with you and with I. We talk about this all the time, that God wants a relationship. How's your relationship with God? Do you have a personal relationship with God? It comes because God is relational. God is communion. And in this relationship is peace. And God wants more than anything to share the life that he has, the life that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has. He wants to share that with you, and he wants to invite you and I into that relationship. And he has made this possible by sending his one and only Son through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And by the power 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. By the grace of Jesus, by the love of the Father, and by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He's invited you and I into peace with himself. Brett, at the beginning of the sermon series, had this quote by John, uh, George Hunsinger that says this, Peace is a gift before it unfolds as a task. It begins with God's work of grace and peace, Brett reminded us. And God has made peace through Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, 14 through 16 says this, For he himself is our peace. Jesus himself is our peace. Who has made the two groups one and destroyed the dividing, destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. It begins with Christ. He himself is our peace who creates the reality of peace. If there's one thing that faith is, it's this. It's faith is the belief that God has already made peace in the world. Do you know why faith is hard? How much peace do you see around the world? The Middle East? Europe? America? It was Thanksgiving this past week. I know not everything was peace in your house. Faith is believing that God has already made peace not only possible, but a reality. It is the most real thing. Because God is the most real. He himself is our peace who creates the reality between us and others in order to reconcile us to each other and then reconcile us to God. So Christ's peace equals this. Peace between us and others, you and I, and then you and I together with God. I've talked about this before, but do you see how this text goes? It's not that God reconciles you to him, and then maybe you get around to other people. Read how it says. Read what it says. His purpose was to create himself one new humanity out of the two. That's what his peace does. Jew and Gentile. People that are enemies. People that have problems. Real problems. Thus making peace. And then once he's taken you and I and put us together and formed one new humanity, one new body, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both through the cross to which you put to death their hostility. In other words, you can have a personal relationship with God. It can be personal, but it's never private. Your relationship with God is never private. It has everything to do with everybody sitting in this room and all your neighbors sitting around you 
and everybody else in the whole world because this is what God is doing. He's making peace. And Ben, if you're thinking I'm crazy, if you think this is hard, this is not some wishy-washy, fluffy theology. This is difficult work. And Christ shows us this difficult. Look what he had to go through to make it happen. In other words, peace, God has already made peace between you and I. The invitation now is for us to live into that reality. Believe that peace is not only possible, but the most real thing. And to live into that reality. Peace with God is a gift that becomes a task to live into. And peace is not passive. It takes work. To be a peacemaker takes work. Peace begins with God and it ends with God, but in the middle there's a task. And the task in which we can enter into and receive God's peace that God offers not only us, but the world. So our text this morning in 2 Corinthians 13 says this, finally brothers and sisters, rejoice, strive, strive for full restoration. To make things right, to restore things. Strive for that. Encourage one another. Be of the same mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Do you see how the language functions at the end of 2 Corinthians? Corinthians and Paul, in Corinthians, Paul has said it's in Jesus Christ. That's where peace. He's already established peace. It's a gift. But it unfolds for us as a task, not something to passively to receive, but to actively pursue. It's a task. This is what God actively pursues. And so he says this, strive, strive for restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace. And then as you do that, the God of peace will be with you. Peace is not passive. It's active. It's hard work. So if you look at our schedule and the way that Brett has arranged this sermon series, he began with God, grace and peace. God's grace his gift is peace. Peace is what relationships look like. Not always, but it's what God, the, the relationship with God looks like. Peace. But then it didn't, we didn't go directly to peace with God like we normally think about. We started with the world in peace. Then we moved to the church in peace. Then we moved to self in peace. Because if you want to understand peace with God... It is a gift of God that begins with God, is the reality that's already there, and that gift then unfolds as a task for us. It unfolds as a task to be peacemakers in the world, in the church, with ourselves. 
So strive for restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And then the God of peace will be with you. So I want to finish the rest of my sermon reminding you. Because what Brett said in his first four sermons is right on the money in terms of what God is doing in the world and the task that God calls you and I to. The task of living into the peace that God has already made possible and the most real thing in the world. And we need to be reminded practically how we do this because this is not easy work that you're called to. So the first is the world. He says, Brett said, we are to be a contrast. And he says this, this is what it means. There's a lot that's talked about what it means to be a contrast, contrast Christianity or countercultural Christianity. And one of the things that this means, if not the most important thing, is that there is not much peace in the world, is there? There's just not. And so we're to be a people that contrasts that, to be a contrast to the world. In other words, Brett remind us that you are called to peace. That's your calling. That's my calling. And that we need courage to, to make peace. Because peace is not passive. It's active. And finally, we do this in community. Because I just can't have this interpersonal peace that the peace of God, the image of God, is God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit communing around a table in a relationship in peace. And so you need a community to do that. And so I think Romans chapter 12 helps us here. Chapter 12, 1 and 2 says this. Therefore I urge you, Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve God's will, his good and pleasing, his perfect will. In view of God's mercy, offer your daily lives as a sacrifice. Paul says. This is your act of worship. And then he says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now what does this actually look like? What does he mean by the pattern of this world? There's a lot that's been said about that. It can be, but if you go on reading in verse 9 through 19, it says this. It gives us a hint about maybe what not conforming to the pattern of this world looks like. He says this, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share, in the Lord's, uh, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless. Don't curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people in a low position. 
Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live in peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, dear friends, but leave room for God. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Here's what not being conformed to the world looks like. It means loving one another. It means honoring one another. It means sharing with one another. It means being hospitable. It means fellowship with one another. It means blessing with one another. It means rejoicing with one another. It means mourning with one another. It means living in harmony. It means living in peace. Do not be conformed to the pattern of violence and destruction and division in this world. Then he says, this is what it looks like to be transformed. I've come to believe, you don't have to agree with me, but I think I'm right. The most difficult call of Jesus is to love your enemy. Because I have a hard time loving my friends. It's hard. But the church is the place where we practice this. There's preventative, Brett talked about, and there's reconciliation. There's the preventative work of peace. Matthew 7, 3 through 5 says this. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time the plank is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will clearly remove the speck in your brother's eye. There's a lot of prevention. We can prevent a lot of anti-peace by being a bit self-reflective. That's what it means. Instead of going around saying, you did this, and you're this, and you're that, just just look at yourself for a minute. It doesn't mean that they haven't done something wrong. And then once you realize what you've done, just say you're sorry. Saying you're sorry doesn't prevent, it doesn't always bring peace. But it's a good step towards that, isn't it? When somebody slighted you and they recognize and they say they're sorry, you're a lot more willing to forgive when somebody just recognizes and says, I'm sorry, screwed up. The second thing is to overlook offenses. We tend to focus on all the problems that we have 
But if you stop and think about how many problems are solved or don't even encounter because of people's willingness to overlook an offense. You know that if you're in a relationship, in a marriage, this is a requirement. Or else you have no hope. You have no hope. Any relationship. Because love covers a multitude of sins. And to overlook an offense is to love. But we have to be very real. Not every offense can be overlooked, can it? Let's don't pretend. There are some real offenses that cannot be overlooked. And so reconciliation is required. And actually, God has given the church a way of reconciling, an actual practical way of reconciling. So Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 17 says this, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So as someone that's a minister and an elder, a shepherd at this church, it is most likely that if you came to me with a problem that you have with someone else, unless this is a problem, for example, that it has to do with abuse or where there's some kind of power differential. But it is likely that most problems, unless it's something like abuse or where there's a significant power difference between you and the person there's a problem with, there's a good chance that my first response would be like, thank you for telling me that. My first question is this, have you gone to that person? And it's not to be rude. It's not because I don't care about your problem. It's not because the elders or the shepherds or the ministers don't care about your problem. This is what God gave us the way to reconcile. You don't like what somebody said? Don't come talk to me first. Because it's easy to talk to me. It's more difficult to talk to the one you disagree with. Second, if you don't feel like things have been made right, then take two or three witnesses. And this is not to go and gang up on someone, but this is so that every matter may be established by the tes testimony of two or three. Maybe you're not seeing something right. Maybe there needs to be a different perspective. Maybe it's too personal between you and that person. Maybe someone can come and help in the matter. And then finally, if there's still no resolution or reconciliation, take it to the church. If they refuse to listen, treat them as a tax collector sinner. And I love what Brett talked about. We don't do this very much because we've had bad experiences with this. And shame is a very powerful tool. 
Because this is a practice of shame, shaming. And while we don't consider ourselves an honor-shame culture, I think Americans feel deep shame. And they struggle with it. And it's something we've actually talked about preaching sometime, talking about shame. One example of a negative that we don't like about a shaming culture is what we call cancel culture. I hear a lot about cancel culture. The positive thing about cancel culture is that it shames someone publicly to where others of us go, yeah, I don't want to, ooh, I don't want to be that. Shame keeps me from doing lots of things that I might do otherwise. It's true. It's a, it's a, it's a powerful tool. It can be abused, but it keeps me from doing certain things. I don't want to be burnt the next Bernie Madoff, Right? But the problem about cancel culture is that it uses the power of shame in a negative way because shaming, what they're talking about, is for the, for the idea of rest- restoring the person, not just making us feel good that we canceled this person. The goal is the person that reconciliation can happen. So good shame, it helps us to reconnect, to reconcile, and it restores honor. Because if you just leave someone in shame, that's not the gospel. The gospel is about honoring. And finally, what do we do about our own shame? The self. So Brett talked about this. Contrition, confession, and satisfaction. And contrition is to grieve the wrong that we've done in the world. It's feeling sorry for our sins and this, that we can lead to repentance. And then we get to the point where we confess. And confession is not an evil thing. Confession is actually a good thing because confession is telling the truth about the past harm telling the truth about what happened in the past that will lead to a future of possible healing. When we confess, we change our relationship with, the past, with past sins and we change the story of who we are in relationship to what we've done. When we confess, what we do doesn't have to become who we are. You're not the sum of all you've done. When we confess, we remove an obstacle of peace and provide an opening for healing. And so contrition and confession are the beginning of peacemaking in our own lives. And then finally, satisfaction. To make amends. What Brett hesitantly said is penance. Because Sometimes when you do something that is unjust, that is harmful to someone, that if someone steals a million dollars from you, but is contrite and confesses, it doesn't mean always that you get your million dollars back, does it? But there's this sense of justice in us that says, wait a minute, I'm glad that you confessed, I'm glad that you're honest, but I'm still out a million bucks. 
And so it's this idea that when we can restore, the just thing to do is to restore. Because I don't know about you, but sorry doesn't always cut it. And maybe I just got to get over it. But there's still that feeling something's not right. And if you have the power to make it right, go make it right. But there's lots of sin in the world that we just can't make it right. We can't undo it. There's a fantastic movie called The Mission. Robert De Niro in it. Came out in 1986, and it's set in the 1750s in Paraguay. And it's the story about the Spanish conquistadors and the, Je and the Jesuits that went to uh, the Guarani people, the native indigenous people, Paraguay. And these two Jesuit priests, Father Gabriel, he sends a priest up to the Guarani, and it begins to evangelize them. And the Guarani take the priest, and they kill him, and they, they nail him to a, to a crucifix, and they send him over the waterfall. But they don't kill Father Gabriel. They take him as a hostage. And over time, Father Gabriel converts the Guarani people to Christianity. Well, there's a conquistador in the movie named Rodrigo Mendoza, played by Robert De Niro. And because of what they've done to the priest, and because they're conquistadors, this is what they do, they go and enslave they go kidnap the Guarani people, enslave them, and kill them. They treat them horribly. All the while, these Guarani people have become Christ Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. And then eventually in Mendoza, Robert De Niro's character, comes to, comes to this point in his life where he's hit rock bottom. And he wants to make a change. And Father Gabriel says, why don't you make penance? And so what he does is that in his, in his robe, he gathers ropes and he ties together all his weapons of war, all his swords and helmet and, and shield, and he puts it all together and he ties it around in this big bag and he straps to his back and he begins climbing the mountain to the Guarani people. And one priest says, don't you think he's paid enough penance after he's getting about halfway up? And Father Gabriel says, no, because he hasn't. He doesn't think he has. And eventually he carries this all the way up to the top of the mountain, to the top where the waterfall is. And he comes and he gets on his knees and he lays this weaponry at the feet of the Guarani, the weapons that he used to kill them. And one of the Guarani pictured here, walks up to him with a knife and puts it at his throat. And everybody's waiting to see what he does. Negrani takes the knife, takes the rope, cuts the burden of the weapons of war off his back, and throws them into the river. And just like the priest that they crucified, it sails off the water. Mendoza begins 
weeping. Because he has experienced mercy and peace. And he goes on to join the Guarani, even against the conquistadors. And he dies with them. This is the story of Christ, who comes and takes our burden, our sin, our shame and offers mercy. It's a gift. It's a gift of peace that Christ offers. But it's not only a gift, it is a task. It's the task of being peacemakers in the world. And peace, peace is not passive. Peace is active. All those practical things that we described today, the scripture talks about, those are difficult things to do because peace is not easy. And if you look at the life of God in Jesus Christ, you know peace is not easy. It was bought with a price. We come to him with a contrite heart, confess our sins, and bring our burdens to him. Christ gives us peace the gift of peace that we receive. It's the gift of God's triune life, communion, relationship, peace. And this gift that we have received has become our task. 2 Corinthians says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Stand.